Thank you so much, Dr. Hardy. I am so delighted to be with you. I uh, just love Danny Aiken and all that is happening here and have many uh, friends among uh, the faculty and students here. I'd, I'd like to speak today on the putative citation of Enoch in Jude. Uh, I, I, I do make an effort to find out what young people are thinking. And uh, the, the young people, the youth today, their biggest question is the reliability of the Bible. And uh, so this is, uh, this is connected to that <clears throat> and to many other things. So, uh, inter- uh, I don't have a, a, a PowerPoint to make my points powerfully, but uh, this, uh, this will help you at, at least uh, see, uh, you can sort of see the paper as I'm going along and some of the charts, charts that are in it. Uh, introduction, a, a consensus exists today nearly equivalent to established fact that when the Apostle Jude in the New Testament refers to Enoch in verses 14 and 15, he is quoting a book, now referred to as First Enoch, and that his citation raises the question of whether this book was considered canonical scripture by at least some early Christians. So this comes up in the famous work by Peter Enns. Concerning First Enoch, Nicholsburg concisely states the book is a collection of traditions and writings composed between the 4th century BC and the turn of the era, namely, mainly in the name of Enoch, the son of Jared. Okay, two. Sections of Enoch. That Enoch is a collection of traditions is evident from the fact that the book is divided into eight major sections and that each section has a different history in terms of composition and and integration into the book that we have at present. Likely these sections existed as booklets before being combined into a single work. These booklets or sections are listed as follows in their putative order of composition. So you have the book of heavenly... Luminaries, the Book of the Watchers, Enoch's Two Dream Visions, Two Pieces of Testamentary Narrative, the Epistle of Enoch, an account of Noah's birth, another book by Enoch, the Book of Parables, and the Book of Giants, which is at Qumran, but not part of the Ethiopic Book of Enoch. It contains material directly related to it. This confirms that at the earliest stages there was a body of loosely related traditions growing in connection with the person of Enoch. So I think that's very important, that last point, that uh, there's a book of giants found at Enoch, uh, at Qumran, which is definitely connected with the Enochic traditions, but not connected in later uh, collections of the Enochic materials. Thirdly, the history of the transmission of the text. That would naturally be something I would be interested in. For our purposes, we may mention the dates assigned to the three earliest sections of Enoch and major reasons given for these dates, aside from the evidence of the manuscripts, which will be listed shortly. Although much recent research has been done on 1st Enoch, 
I begin with a 1992 article by Nicholsburg in the Anchor Bible Dictionary. So the Book of Heavenly Luminaries, part of the evidence for considering the Book of Heavenly Luminaries as the earliest is that the discussion of the function and structure of celestial and terrestrial phenomena belongs to the bitter debate in some sectors of Judaism in the second century BC about whether a lunar or solar calendar was divinely instituted. Jubilees 4, 17, 21, and 6, 35 to 38, it is argued, cite First Enoch to attack the lunar calendar as Gentile. Secondly, the Book of Watchers. This is considered the second oldest section, dating probably to the second half of the third century, and reflects a developing accretion of traditions that stem from the fourth century. Nicholsburg states, it is likely that in the original form of this myth, the watchers were sent by God to instruct humankind in useful arts. Believe it or not, like the Lord of the Rings, this is uh, largely uh, a growth of speculation based on Genesis 6, 1 to 4. <laughs> so you didn't know it had in common that Tolkien has something in common with the Enochic traditions. <clears throat> Enoch's two uh, dream visions. The first vision foresees the flood, while the second provides an allegorical apocalypse of history from Adam to the eschaton. Dependence upon materials in the book of Daniel indicates it must have been composed before Judas's defeat of Nicanor in 161 BC. Uh, that's because Nicholsburg uh, dates the book of Daniel to the second century. <clears throat> there is no pre-Christian evidence for section 7 and 8, the first part of section 4, or for the arrangement in the Ethiopic version. Now we'll look at the textual witnesses. First of all, the Ethiopic text. This is the only complete, and we can put the word question mark there because it doesn't include the Book of Giants, version. The only complete version of Enoch is in Ethiopic. It is a translation based on both a Greek version as well as a copy of the Aramaic parent text and made between the 4th and 6th centuries AD. Michael Nib prepared a critical edition based on 33 manuscripts, the oldest of which dates to the 5th century AD, 15th century. The Aramaic text Numerous fragments, many of them extremely small, from Qumran Cave 4 are as follows. Notice here that, this, that the tilde symbol means corresponds or corresponds roughly to parts of. So we have uh, 4Q201, E-N-A-A-R, and you can see there are four parts that are mostly... Uh, from the first section. And then we have 4Q202, which has six parts, uh, also from Ethiop, uh, the first uh, section, 1 to 36. Uh, 4Q204 is Enoch C in Aramaic and has parts of 1 to 36, 83 to 90, and 91 to 107. But it also has parts from the uh, Book of Giants. Two oh five. There's three sections there and two sections there. I don't think we can put them all on. Um, 
There's uh, 4Q206 from 100 to 50 BC, and it has uh, parts of 1 to 36 and 83 to 90. There's uh, also fragments of uh, the giants. 207 is one fragment containing three verses from 86. 212 has from 50 BC and has parts of 91 to 107. Then we have uh, 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 four pieces that are labeled uh, ENASTR, the astronomical. It, it's Enoch Astronomical. It's basically just discussing the phases of the moon and is related to the book of the heavenly luminaries. So uh, there are four sections. A is vaguely like 73. Uh, B, B has five sections uh, corresponding to that sa uh, same section. Uh, C, here is C, has, what, two sections, 50 to 0 BC, phases of the moon. Here's an interesting part. 4Q211 uh, has material which logically would follow chapter 82, verse 20. So, in, there's a section in 82 that talks about uh, spring and summer, and this section talks about autumn and winter. So logically, it would fit into that section, which therefore suggests that the Ethiopic book, as we now have it, is really not complete. So there's a little chart giving you a summary of all of this uh, data. There's also a Greek scroll at Qumran, a Greek scroll at Qumran. Uh, this is the scroll that, the, that uh, Jose O'Callaghan thought had verses from the New Testament, and it turns out uh, that, um, so you have a column showing what O'Callaghan thought they were, and actually they've been recognized as pieces of the book of, of Enoch. And all of those little fragments are uh, 7Q41. Uh, uh, that's we're considering that one one papyrus. The Greek text. The Greek text. There are four fragments cited in Sunkelis, who is a Byzantine writer that died after 810, and they're all from the first. Uh, they're all from chapter 6 and 8. There's also something called Codex Panopolitanus, uh, uh, a manuscript from the Akmim area of Egypt, in the six, and it's a 6th century manuscript. Uh, this manuscript actually duplicates chapters 19.3 to 21.9. So... Um, this often happens in manuscripts, uh, so they're uh, listed as Pan and Pan A. Codex Vaticanus, an 11th century, has uh, 
seven verses from chapter 89. There's the Chester Beatty Michigan Papyrus, which has parts of 97 to 107. And then there, are, there is, uh, according to Millick, this, there are fragments of Oxyrhynchus Papyrus 2069, mostly from uh, uh, 78 to 86. There's a Latin text, uh, British Library Manuscript Royal 5, which contains 18 verses out of chapter 106. There's a Coptic fragment that contains chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. There's something in Syriac. It's a citation of chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 in, uh, from an author called Michael the Syrian who wrote a chronicle in the, ele- tw- in the 12th century. There are also some very important uh, patristic witnesses that preserve the Old Latin uh, and these are Pseudo-Cyprian in a work called Ad Novationum and Pseudo-Vigilius Thapsensis, Contra Varimandum. I've given you the standard uh, text there, CSEL and CCSL. Now, for a simplification, it's nice to say what does all of this mean. Here's a, uh, here's a simplification. Basically... Apparently, the Enochic traditions were first written down in booklets as follows, all right? So there are five main booklets. The Astronomical Book, the Book of Watchers, the Epistle of Enoch, the Book of Dreams, the Book of Parables. You can see what each one contains. There's an abbreviation, A, B, B, W, E, E, B, D, and B, P, and you can see the dates. And let me see if I can get all of this on the screen. Uh, the Book of Giants, as we said, come, is found at Qumran, uh, but is not, uh, con- not uh, connected with the other parts in later textual tradition. Later on, the booklets were combined on a single scroll, and the manuscript evidence for this is as follows. So three of the manuscripts have more than one of these booklet parts, parts of more than one of these booklets. So, for example, 4Q Enoch C has the Book of Watchers, the Book of Giants. Notice that the Book of Giants is included there. The Book of uh, Dreams and the Epistle of Enoch. This is from the the very end, the very end of the first century uh, B.C. So, it seems that these traditions... uh, uh, started out as individual booklets and by the first century BC and first century AD were being combined in the way that we see later in the uh, Ethiopic book. Now what we're going to do is we're going to compare the texts. We're going to compare uh, Enoch uh, nine, which is the verse that is supposed to be cited, uh, the verse that is supposed to be cited uh, in Jude, uh, with, uh, with the book of Jude. So, uh, first of all, the, uh, we start with the, uh, with the uh, Qumran scrolls that were edited by Mil- Milik. What you have in red are the words on the scroll, okay? What you have in black is reconstructed by Millick 
on the basis of Jude. Okay? And so I've, I've done this in both Aramaic and, and English. So you can see that we have, uh, part in, in three lines, we have like a couple of words in each line. And, uh, and the rest of it is Millick's reconstruction uh, based on, on the citation in Jude. Okay? Uh, here, uh, so now we're going to go to the Greek text. There's the Greek text of Enoch 1.9 and the Greek text of Jude. They got separated here. But the words in red are the words that these two texts have in common. Okay? And uh, it's about 72%. So uh, these two texts have about 72% of their words in common. You, uh, here's the Ethiopic text of chapter 1, verse 9. Behold, he comes with 10,000 holy ones to execute judgment upon them and to destroy the impious and to contend with all flesh concerning everything which sinners and the impious have done and wrought against him. So what you can see here is that the Ethiopic text is, is not very much like the text in Jude. So the Greek text... The Greek text, uh, uh, I, I don't know very much about the translation technique of the Ethiopic translator, uh, or uh, he's supposed to have been basing it on an Aramaic parent text plus the Greek text, but the bottom line is his, his version of verse 9 looks a lot less like Jude than the, the one we have in the Greek text. Uh, these are the these are um, these are the Latin ones. Um, it's not very difficult to read Latin. <clears throat> so it's uh, Scripture says, "Behold, he comes with uh, ten thousands of his uh, his angels to make judgment upon all and to destroy all the impious ones and to accuse all flesh of all their impious deeds." Uh, which they have impiously done and of all their impious words which they have spoken against God. Okay? So uh, uh, I'm putting these out for a reason and you'll see that in a moment. Here's the text from Pseudo-Vigilius Thapsensis. It's, okay, he actually thinks he's quoting Jude and in the epistle of Jude the Apostle, behold, he comes... Or this one is he came, he comes, uh, the Lord comes with with uh, ten thousands to make judgment and to destroy all impious and to accuse all flesh. You notice how it's this word flesh comes in here. It's quite different from Jude of all their uh, impious works. There is a critical edition of the old Latin that was is. Uh, uh, this is another project that has gone by the by. Uh, so there was a there was a project, uh, the Betis Latina project, in Boiron, Germany, and the project uh, it was a, it was a, like many Roman Catholic projects had been going for over a hundred years and then was uh, was defunded and shut down. Uh, but um, uh, 
uh, we ha uh, just to make things very simple, we have very few manuscripts of the Old Latin. So most of the Old Latin Bible is reconstructed from quotations in church fathers. Uh, I could actually show you a text. I could show you a page out of this. Uh, it, the apparatus is huge because it's it's full of the it's mostly the citations. That's why I spent so much time uh, spent time looking at those two quotes are really the two most important quotes that it, that this text here is actually reconstructed from. There's the Vulgate, which I, I just put in for good measure. So, the text in Jude and the text in Enoch have 72% of all words in common. This could be considered an abbreviated or adapted citation. If Jude 14b to 15, a, to 15 is a citation of 1st Enoch, then Jude has cited the text fairly, fairly freely. Another possibility is that both 1st Enoch and the reference in Jude go back to a common tradition in Judaism, much like Paul's reference to Janus and Jambres as the names of the magicians opposing Moses. Elsewhere, their names are only known in the Aramaic Targums, like Targum Neophyti. The most recent research on the statement in Jubilees is by Jacques Van Ruyten, and he concludes, the author of Jubilees knew about the Enochic traditions. He is strongly influenced by this material. However, in my opinion, it is not possible to say that Jubilees is dependent on the text of First Enoch. The wording of the two is too different. So it could be that Jude is like Jubilees. These people are drawing from a common tradition, and he may not necessarily be citing an actual uh, a text. I don't, if he is citing a text, I don't have a problem with that, as you're going to see. Now we're going to look at uh, Roman numeral 7, Enoch and inspiration in Second Temple Judaism. So I want to I want to rate, deal briefly with the question of the cessation of inspiration. I want to show you three things. This was predicted by the last of the prophets. It was acknowledged by the people living during that time and it was affirmed by those who lived after that time. Okay, number one, if you look at uh, first, uh, first, uh, if you look at, uh, this is uh, Zechariah 13, 2 to 6, predicts the cessation of prophecy. The beauty of these things is, uh, phones, is we can just pull up the Hebrew text here. Hebrews, uh, thir no, uh, Zechariah 13, 2. So it will be in that day, declares Yahweh of armies, I will cut off the names of the idols from the earth and they will no longer be, they will no longer be remembered. And also the prophets and the, and the spirit, there's the spirit of impurity I will cause to pass away from the land. And so if anyone if any man prophesies further, his father and his mother will say, who bore him will say to him, you 
You will not live because you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And they will pierce him through, his father and his mother, who bore him when he prophesies. And so then then if, if he survives, he he staggers out of the room and, and it's... People say, well, where'd you get these wounds in your body? And he says, well, I, I was in the house of my friends. So, um, <clears throat> my dad and mom. So, uh, uh, Zechariah very clearly predicts the cessation of prophecy. Secondly, the cessation of prophecy is demonstrated historically in two ways. Positively, there is an awareness in Second Temple Judaism that, that inspiration has ceased. So three times in the book of Maccabees, it clearly says that they didn't know what to do because there was no prophet in Israel. So for example, uh, uh, when they were rebuilding the altar, they didn't know what to do with the uh, stones from the former altar, you know, where Antiochus Epiphanes had, had sacrificed a pig to Zeus. Uh, and therefore defiled that altar. They didn't know what to do with those stones and because there was no prophet uh, to tell them what to do. So they just put them in a special place and waited, uh, waited for some prophet. This is very interesting because in 1526 at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the deuterocanonical texts as scripture. But these texts not only do not claim to be scripture, they claim not to be scripture. And then, uh, if you're probably familiar with the rule of the community, at Qumran 1Q Serachiyachad, there's a very interesting section that describes the structure of the community with their teacher, their priests, their Levites, and then the men in the assembly, all of whom have a particular pecking order from the greatest to the least. And that structure clearly shows you that there is no prophet there is no one who authoritatively speaks for God at this time. So there, there, are these, there are other people like Enoch who claim to be speaking for God, but uh, there are uh, some standard leaders in Judaism who, are, who clearly say no one is speaking for God at this time. The, there's also negative evidence, and that is the emergence of pseudepigraphical literature. It's a clear testimony to the, to the cessation of inspiration, since authors appeal to authoritative figures in order to claim divine inspiration. So there's a list of all the, of all the pseudepigrapha. And here's, uh, here's something uh, that I wanted to quote. Uh, I actually know John Van Cedars personally. Uh, his parents went to Knox Presbyterian Church in Toronto. They were godly people. And uh, one son was uh, president of a liberal seminary in uh, Vancouver, and the other son, uh, you probably know where John Van Cedars is at. I can tell you this, that he was so kicking against the evangelical pricks of his upbringing that he was too much for the liberals in the department where I studied, and they kicked him out. And he went down to Chapel Hill in, uh, where, that's in Nor North Carolina? Yeah, okay. So, this is a man that I know personally. I actually talked to him in the last five years when we went to the funeral for John, Dum John William Weavers. 
So uh, in his book, The Edited Bible, he says, Childs objects to this historical critical notion of authorship as modern and anachronistic, but our notions of author and authority are certainly ancient. This is especially the case with the canon. All the works within a canon must be attributed to an author who bears the appropriate authority, and for scripture this could only be satisfied by divine inspiration from the age of revelation that ended with Ezra. The closest parallel to this, of course, is the establishment of the Greek classics, especially Homer, the rival of Moses. Notions of authorship in the case of the Hebrew scriptures seem to have been directly influenced by conceptions of the Hellenistic world. At the very time that the limits of scripture were being debated, the ancient world knew a great deal about pseudepigraphy and the attribution of false authors to texts in order to gain authority for the views expressed in those writings. The book of Daniel is a rather blatant example of an instance in which a pseudepigraphy epigraphy succeeded in deceiving the rabbinic canonizers so this is this is hilarious this is from a liberal and uh, this here's a liberal a liberal scholar saying pseudepigraphy is a clear testimony to the fact that inspiration has ceased only they they fooled them uh, Daniel fooled them of course because Daniel was written in the second century <laughs> it's nice when you have a, a, a I don't know what you uh, I don't know what you men think. I had I had I have 19 years of education after high school, and 17 of them were in this kind with this kind of teaching. Okay, so uh, it, it's uh, I react to it constantly, uh, and some of you some of you have no idea of what it's like to be in an institution like this. <clears throat> Confirmation in the rabbinic period, the rabbis agreed that the canon was closed and had been closed for a long time. With the death of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the latter prophets, the Holy Spirit ceased out of Israel. Okay, so you see that this is found in in some of our oldest sources. So this is a this is a repeated. This text, this statement is found at least four times. Number four, we have warnings in Paul about endless genealogies and foolish myths. So if you look at these verses in 1 Timothy 1, 4, 6, 4, 7, 6, 4, 2 Timothy 2, 23, and Titus 3, 9, he warns his readers not to avoid endless genealogies and foolish myths. And I submit to you that the Enochic traditions fit exactly uh, it fit exactly this uh, what Paul is talking about because they contain a, an enormous genealogy of all of the angels and they are speculations based on Genesis 6, 1 to 4. So uh, now I want to turn eighthly to the literary structure of the book of Jude. Uh, let's see. The following literary structure of the book of Jude is the research of Andrew M. Fountain. It does not seem to be based on any earlier scholarship, which uh, that, those are the commentaries that we check. The literary structure, uh, let's look at the literary structure here. It, I don't know if you can see this well, very well. First of all, there are three examples from history of the rejection of God's authority and punishment, and these are these are uh, related in chiastic structures. So, um, 
So we have uh, the uh, exodus out of Egypt. You have uh, what I think he's referring to, the angels who did not keep their proper domain as Genesis chapter 6. And then you have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And these are actually, I could give a long lecture on how Hebrew literature works, but the fundamental principle of Hebrew literature is to repeat yourself. Uh, And there's actually, it's actually a brilliant concept because it's like, it's like listening to a stereo with a left speaker and a right speaker. So in one sense, the music coming out of the speakers is the same, but they're sli- each one is slightly different, and the difference is what allows you to have a stereo music. So instead of Aristotelian rectilinear logic, you actually have stereo ideas or holographic ideas. It's a different approach to communication. And so one, if you have two ideas and you're going to repeat them twice, you can do ABAB or you can do ABBA, which is what we call a chiastic structure. And so these are, 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 are the three biblical examples are united by a chiastic structure and then separated from that is an extra biblical example, uh, which is um, uh, the dispute between Moses and the uh, my, uh, the devil and Michael, the archangel, over the body of Moses, which is from uh, the assumption of Moses. Then we have three examples of individuals from three eras of history: Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Notice again that the that repetition and chiasm unites the biblical examples, and then there's an extra biblical example, which is the putative citation from Enoch. So even if you consider it a direct citation from the book of Enoch, the literary structure shows that he's carefully separating the biblical examples from the non-biblical examples. The function of Jude's appeal to Jewish traditions. At the second Enoch seminar in Venice, Italy, 2003, Paolo Sacchi one of the gurus in the field, gave a paper entitled er, er, History of the Earliest Enochic Texts. He makes the following interesting observations concerning the Book of Watchers. The origin of evil in the world lies in an angelic sin that contaminated the whole world. Number two, the impure truly exists in nature as an outcome of angelic sin. Impurity in the root is the root of evil in history. Besides, the devil continues his work in the world. The focus then, the central message of the book of Watchers is to demonstrate through genealogical and narrative speculations on angels based on Genesis 6 that chaos and evil in the world are due to angelic sin. It seems then that the function of Jude's reference to the Enochic traditions is to demonstrate and emphasize, you notice how the word ungodly appears four times in that verse, that evil in our present world is due to human rebellion. So he's using their own text against them. Do you see that? He's taking the Enochic traditions and saying, look guys, Evil is here not because of angelic sin, it's because ungodly, 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 ungodly. Did you get the message? Impious, 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 impious. In case you're deaf, I will repeat it four times. 
So, evil cannot be blamed on angels. Jude uses the Enochic traditions against those who follow them. The reference to the dispute of Michael the archangel with the devil over the body of Moses appears to function in precisely the same way. Here we have another reference to speculative traditions from Second Temple period, the Assumption of Moses. Scholars are agreed that the comment of Jude is a clear reference to the lost ending of this work. Jude refers to this work to show that the greatest angel of all did not have authority to rebuke the devil but committed the issue to God himself. Hence, all appeal to angelic authority is worthless. So he's using their texts against them. The influence of the Jewish Enochic traditions in history. Two aspects of history subsequent to this should be noted. First, Syriac Christianity did not heed the warnings of Paul. So... Already in the writings of Afrahat, one of the earliest, we see the angel Gabriel receiving the prayers of Christians and determining whether or not they will be heard in heaven. So Syriac Christianity has a very developed angelology, much beyond what we find in the Bible. Attention to angels is advanced and developed in Syriac Christianity. Further details are tracked down in the major study by Annette Reed, Fallen Angels in the History of Judaism and Christianity, the Reception of Enochic Literature. The major areas affected geographically were Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and what we know as Turkey today. Doubtless Christianity in the West was spared this influence, not because of superior spirituality, but because they were cut off linguistically from the Jewish traditions. Second, Patricia Crone, not, uh, not, uh, not someone known for being a conservative, has demonstrated that the Quran has at least five distinct instances where it is directly dependent on the Book of Watchers. Although angelic genealogies are not in the Quran, much of Islam today follows an elaborate genealogy of angels and the teaching that angelic sin is responsible for evil and impurity in our world and avoids the biblical doctrine of sin. In fact, this ha- I was evangelized on the airplane uh, in the past year by a Muslim. And, and this, this, this was a very educated man. He was a doctor in Chicago. He told me he, he, told me he was paying off uh, loans worth of $600,000 for his education. Uh, so this was not, you know, uh, uh, this was a, a very educated Muslim and so, and, and he proceeded to evangelize me by giving me the genealogy of all these angels and, 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 until we come to Shaitan, who, uh, who, uh, led us all astray and is the responsi- responsible for evil in our world. So, so, uh, this is very much part of Islam today. Tracing the connection between earlier groups whether Christian or Jewish, that held to the Enochic traditions and later Islam is not possible on the basis of our current evidence. Note that we have citations from the Book of Watchers in the, in the extract of chronography of, of Synchelus, who died shortly after 810 AD. Since Synchelus was drawing on earlier sources, we can assume that the Book of Watchers was known in Byzantium in the 5th or 6th century AD. The fact that Michael the Syrian cites the Book of Watchers in Syriac, however, does not mean that there was a, Syri- a, ver- a version in Syriac. 
Michael Cyrus was dependent on a translation of the work of Anianus into Syriac for his information. Anianus and his older contemporary Pandorus, Pandorus box, uh, Pandorus were monks in Egypt deeply influenced by the Enochic traditions. The influence of monks in, from Egypt upon Syri- Syriac Christianity can be attested by their graves at Mar Gabriel in, at Turabdin in eastern Turkey. So I've been there. This is the oldest monastery. Uh, I don't know what's happening to it today, but they had Christ- continuous, continuous Christian worship from 390 up to the present. Conclusions. Number one, Jude's presentation of Enoch as an example of delivering the godly in the midst of ungodliness may be drawn from a common Jewish tradition and is not necessarily a quote of the book of Enoch. That is, both literary works could be drawing upon a common tradition. Clear evidence that Jude is citing first Enoch as a literary worker or even as scripture is lacking. Two, the literary structure in Jude clearly distinguishes examples drawn from Scripture and those drawn from extra-biblical tradition. Three, although there is much in this Jewish tradition that ought to be avoided, according to Paul, some of it is true, such as Enoch's condemnation of his contemporaries and the names of the magicians who oppose Moses. Four, Jude is using the Jewish Enochic traditions to counter their own assertion that evil in the world is due to angelic impurity. Rather, evil is due to human rebellion against God as taught in Genesis 3. Thank you for listening to this talk. All right, well, um, I'm sure you, Dr. Jim, you can stay up there if you like. Okay. And, uh, sure, lots of questions here. Uh, Chuck's got a, a mic there. If uh, you just raise your hand and we can come around and, and uh, start with questions. Yes, sir. Thank you, Dr. Gentry, for an excellent presentation. Ken Keithley, I teach theology. Dr. Mosley and I uh, were at a conference just a couple of weeks ago on the doctrine of Scripture, and we were asked by a layperson uh, that very question. Uh, uh, what about Jude's uh, citation uh, of, of First Enoch? Uh, how, how, if you were speaking at a, at, a, at a church or if you were asked by laymen, uh, how would you succinctly perhaps answer that? Uh, you know, how, how would you distill that down? I guess you did kind of do that with that four points. But if you were at a Sunday school class or something of that nature, how would you perhaps answer that to lay people? Well, I would just say three things. Number one, uh, it's not clear that Jude is citing a book. He could be... Um, he could be drawing on a common Jewish tradition. These, uh, secondly, these traditions were speculations based on Genesis 6. And thirdly, I would say that uh, Jude is... Uh, uh, the, structure, the literary structure shows that these examples are clearly separated from the biblical examples. So uh, it, it, uh, there's no evidence... Um, that uh, that uh, Enoch is part of the canon in Jude's mind. And fourthly, uh, Jude is actually using their texts to disprove their own teaching. Is that simple enough for an adult Sunday school class? 
Dr. Quarles. I'm wondering about the implications of this for modern-day missionary practices. Uh, if it was a legitimate exercise for Jude to use their own non-authoritative text against them, would you suggest then that it is okay for a missionary to use the Book of Mormon in refuting Mormonism or the Quran to refute Islam? Well, uh, I mean, doesn't Paul do something like that when he says Cretans are always liars and glutton, gluttons? And uh, and he, he quote, in, in Acts, he, he quotes uh, Aratus, right? So in a, in a sense, uh, he's using their... their I, I would say, A, all communication has to begin with the worldview, the cultural worldview uh, of the hearer. So the person who is speaking, and that's what you see in the Bible, uh, uh, God always begins with the, the cultural setting and the linguistic data of the people themselves, and then he turns that inside out. Um, so I, I think that's the example of God himself. Look, look at the tabernacle, for example. So when the Israelites first saw the tabernacle, they, they would have said, oh, I've seen this before. I can, I can show you the plan of over 100 tab temples in the ancient Near East that all have an outer courtyard. You have an altar of sacrifice, and there's a, room with two, there's a building with two rooms, an outer room and an inner room, you see. So they would have said, oh, we know what this is. Uh, uh, but... Uh, the difference, but there's one tiny difference, and that is between the Canaanite temples and the Israelite temple, is that after you go through the courtyard and the altar of sacrifice from the outer room to the inner room, uh, first of all, instead of a statue inside that represents one of the forces of nature, there's nothing there. There's a little box, and uh, what's in the box is the Ten Commandments. And so um, the Canaanites... Uh, their religion was based on sympathetic magic, which means if we get things going downstairs, sexual orgies, the gods will get things going upstairs and the land will be fertile. And you can see that God is saying, uh, you cannot manipulate the powers that be to guarantee the good life for yourself. If you want the good life, you have to come my way. Ethics determines the future and not, uh, not sympathetic magic. So... Uh, I, I think the right way to interpret the Bible is to compare and contrast with the surrounding culture. And so I, I think since God communicates that way, that, that would be a, a, the way we, we would communicate as missionaries. Does that make any sense? And a, a follow-up question. Would it really undermine our doctrine of biblical inspiration if Jude were actually quoting the book of Enoch, but using it as you've suggested? I don't know. I don't think, uh, because I'm, I'm citing it as a, a historical source. I'm saying there is a tradition that says this, but look at what this tradition says. This tradition says that evil is due to humans, not to angels. So you guys can't even read your own texts. You know, that would be... That would be uh, the, I think, the uh, the approach. Um, <clears throat> you know, when uh, you look at uh, Sundberg's thesis, you know, he says that you can't even speak of canonization or 
in in those terms, you right. know, this radical bifurcation between scripture and canonization until the fourth century. Mm-hmm. When we look at you know the way the early church used the Septuagint, mm-hmm. um, you know, what can we say or can we say regarding how we should view the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text? You know, is the is the Septuagint scripture? Um, you know, you have the prayer of Azariah and other texts that the Eastern Orthodox tradition would view as, as canon. Mm-hmm. But what do we do with these things? And secondly, I'm not able, I'm a commuter, so I'm not able to stay for your talk in uh, the biblical theology mm-hmm. uh, talk, which I, I'm really sad for that. But one question I, that's really, uh, I would love to get your response on are, what, what are maybe the two or three main topics in biblical theology or systematic theology in your opinion, that are in our in our context, in our sits in Laban, that really need to be written on it. All these scholars in a room, what can we write on? You know, that may be a lacuna in scholarship from a biblical theology standpoint that ought to be written on to speak to what we're going through in our in our culture today. Oh, that's a big question. Uh, let me answer the first one first. Um, So when I uh, give my, give a course in Introduction to Old Testament, with the, uh, the way they do it at Southern Seminary, it's just Introduction to Old Testament Part 1 and Introduction to Old Testament Part 2. So they give us two semesters, and then they give two semesters to the other guys with their skinny little book. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just teasing. Actually, as a Septuagint scholar, I sit on the fence and I uh, work with both Testaments all the time. So I believe in the whole Bible. I'm not r- really an Old Testament pr- professor. Um, okay, let me show you. Th- uh, let me show you this. Uh, I give uh, I give a, th- a three-hour lecture on the canon because uh, I'm convinced that. Uh, well, I'll tell you what I think. It's only in the last year, I, I, I'm over 60, and it's very hard for me to find out what young people are thinking. Um, and I work very hard at it. Uh, so I've read all the Hunger Games books and the <laughs> Divergent, Insurgent, and Allegiant series and seen the movies. And you know, I'm trying to, trying to find out what these people are thinking. Um, what I've discovered, uh, especially among pe- people that are connected with the church, is that they, in, in a very vague sense, the reliability of the Bible is is one of the biggest questions that is out there today. What I would like to see happen is a conference the size of T4G, where we have people who the the. I'm, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but a lot of the, the people who speak at these conferences aren't specialists. I, uh, I don't think we... It, it's not a conference for, the, for, for systematic theologians as speakers. We want experts. I've spent my whole life in textual criticism. And uh, I would like, you know, I could address the text of the Old Testament. Someone like Stephen Dempster is probably the best evangelical scholar on the canon. You know this new book that came out last week, The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures, edited by D.A. Carson, 37 essays. Well, Stephen Dempster has an essay in there on uh, Josephus, the uh, re- 
so so we need some real we need some real scholarly work that are addressing each one of these problems and so i i picked a very small problem and i showed what i thought what, what i hope was a masterful treatment that will will completely shut down the opposition or shut down a peter ends because he hasn't thought of these things here it's very obvious in his book that he hasn't he hasn't done any serious study like this of the text i've got every last source here and I've looked at the literary structure, and I've I've uh, I've put the whole ball of wax together. So um, we that's that, and we need someone we need someone doing canon of the New Testament, probably Chuck Hill or Michael Kruger, and we need somebody on the text of the New Testament, um, uh, someone who can speak authoritatively there, and and we need. In a, in a conference, in the conference that I'm proposing, we also need um, a number of mini papers just like this that deal with very particular problems that are constantly gnawing away. Uh, you know, you need someone to deal with the Nag Hammadi codices. Uh, last year I was in Toronto, there was a full page spread. Uh, on, on how Jesus got married and, 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 and his children, you see. And, uh, and, and halfway through the article, you find out that it's a manuscript that comes from 300 AD, which is, wow, this is incredible. This is so early. But nowhere in the article is there any, any concept of, of, of the fact that these are Gnostic documents and, you know, how do those relate to, uh, to Orthodox Christianity? Do you see what I mean? So, uh, so the average reader, the average reader, they don't even know. All they know is I saw this full-page article and uh, it was based on a really old manuscript and Jesus was married. Uh, and uh, so that, that's all that the average person knows. And so we need to, we need to deal with this. Let me uh, address your, uh, your question of the Septuagint here. Um, I've got to find uh, the canon, OT canon. Here it is. Now, um, my PhD, my PhD is in Septuagint. Uh, when I uh, did my PhD, there were only four scholars in the entire world who could have supervised my work, and two of them were at my university. So I got a training that uh, just doesn't exist anywhere else today. Uh, my professor, John William Weavers, believed in an Alexandrian canon as opposed to a Palestinian canon, and he believed that the, the Alexandrian canon was bigger than the Palestinian canon. But that's not true for the following reasons. Alexandrian Judaism was not independent of Palestinian Judaism. You can see that even from the letter of Aristeus, they had to send to Jerusalem for these great scholars to come down and bring their manuscripts, and and the king wined and dined them, and they amazed him by their answers. And even if this is propaganda, it shows you that uh, uh, Alexandrian Judaism was not independent of Palestinian Judaism. Number B, two, not all of the Apocrypha were originally composed in Greek or even in Egypt. Number three, uh, the verses that I showed you in 1 Maccabees acknowledge that inspiration has ceased. 
Number four, the evidence of Ben Sira or Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus shows that the canon was closed. So if you read, if you read the preface written by the grandson, the grand, it, he said he three times he mentions the law and the prophets and the other books or the other writings. Uh, so he has a definite body of literature in, in his mind, and his grandfather's great work is not included in that three in that body of literature. Philo of Alexandria does not, fifthly, Philo does not quote the Apocrypha, nor did he write commentaries on these books. Fifthly, there are no New Testament quotations of the Apocrypha. So uh, uh, what we have here is uh, pseudepigrapha, or the, which, which no, one can, can, uh, no one, at least up until 100 years ago, considered scripture. Uh, Uh, six, seven. The manuscripts of the Septuagint are of Christian, not Jewish origin. Do you understand that? Our oldest manuscripts, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus, are not Christian men, are not Jewish manuscripts. They're Christian manuscripts, and they're made, they're copies made 500 years at least after the original translation. Those manuscripts can tell us nothing about the canon in Alexandria in the 3rd century BC. Uh, the next point. In manuscripts of the Septuagint, the Apocrypha varying in number and name. So we could take those three oldest codices and we could be very certain about what books belong to the canon of the Old Testament, but we, but they, but we could not define the body of the Apocrypha from those three manuscripts. Uh, Nine, during the second century AD, the Jews adopted Aquila's Greek translation, which excludes the Apocrypha and rejected the Septuagint. So what happened is the, 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 Christi- the church began, of course, as a Jewish sect, but quickly spread to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were Greek-speaking, and so they naturally adopted the Greek translation as their Bible. And uh, the Jew, we see a reaction because we have revisions of the Septuagint made by Aquila, by Theodotion, Aquila, and Symmachus. That's the proper uh, chronological order. Theodotion is older than Aquila or Symmachus. And they were trying to bring the Hebrew, the Greek translation into closer alignment with the Hebrew text. And one of, for, for probably a number of reasons, but not the least of which was to, you know, Christians would quote verses from the Septuagint to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, and these were bad translations in some cases. And uh, tenthly, uh, or eleventh, uh, Theodosian, a Jewish proselyte, made a revision of the Septuagint in the first or second century, which did not have the Apocrypha. There are good reasons why Christians included a number of the books of the so-called Apocrypha in early editions of the Greek scriptures. Number one, they believed these books were helpful and useful reading for Christians. 
Number two, because they were separated from the Jewish community and therefore from a knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, they did not have a clear grasp of which books were part of the Old Testament canon and which ones were not. So the Christian church was very quickly separated from its Jewish roots and therefore not able to distinguish. The fact, these, the facts show that the circulation of books emanating from the late Second Temple Judaism along with Greek translations of the book of the Old Testament does not constitute proof for a different canon in Alexandria. So it's like somebody a thousand years from now doing archaeology at Southern Seminary and concluding that Wayne Grudem's systematic theology was part of the canon because uh, it's found on so many bookshelves and seems to have a more prominent place than the Bible. Does that answer part of your question? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, now, what was uh, what was the? Uh, <laughs> just, just you know, from uh, from from a systematic and biblical theology. I mean, you know, what what are some of the the major gaps that you see in scholarship that need to be addressed? You know, from um, as from a New Testament scholar, Old Testament missiology. What are some Maybe one or two of the top ones that you think that uh, we, we, we ought to be thinking about and writing about. Well, uh, for, first of all, I would like to begin with a disclaimer, which I will also make in the next session, is that I'm not really a theologian. I want to, I, uh, I know that may, that may sound silly since I've uh, co-authored this book with Stephen Wellham, but I, 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 I have a bachelor's degree in, in arts and sciences, I went to Dallas Seminary for two years and dropped out, and then the rest of my training is in was in a de- was in an, a department called the Department of Near Eastern Studies. So my training is just like Dr. Hardy's. It was in archaeology, history, and languages of the ancient Near East. So I'm a specialist in the ancient Near East, and I'm a specialist in the Septuagint, but I don't even have a theological degree. Um, uh, I, I, I wrote the book, Kingdom Through Covenant, because um, I, was, I was brought up in a dispensational premillennial home. My father was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary in 1954, so I go back before Craig Blazing. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and my mother, my mother had, had a degree from a Bible college that where all the professors came from Dallas Theological Seminary, and in addition to that, both of my she had training. Uh, what what we now call Christian education in our seminaries was being invented between 1945 and 1955, and uh, my mother, uh, there were two sisters up at Wheaton College, so she uh, who were the pioneers in Christian education. I'm trying to think of their names, um, and and Howard Hendricks down at Dallas. My my both of my parents were influenced by them. So they not only had dispensational premillennialism, they knew how to teach it. The whole our home was a Sunday school. Uh, so basically, what happened to me? Yeah. So basically what happened to me is um, during the 70s, I 
that's when I went to university and was taught, you know, was given some education, taught how to think critically. And, I, and that's when I started learning the languages and learned how to do exegesis. I learned a lot of that at the University of Toronto, and I was, uh, they did a very good job of teaching exegesis at Dallas Seminary. And so what happened to me as a pastor is that I faithfully applied that exegetical method, and every time I came to a, a sort of a big light bulb in the system, I and exegeted the passage for myself, I came away thinking if I didn't come with their framework, I wouldn't come away with their conclusions. So, um, so I basically gave up the system. Uh, I was not attracted to cov classical covenant theology because it was also, basically both of these systems had a meta-narrative that was not straightforwardly equivalent to the, to the meta-narrative of Scripture. I could look at the I could look at the Bible and say the the basic plot line of the Bible does not match the plot line that these people are talking about, and so so I was in no man's land for a long time. Um, I, I one of my uh, one professor that had a huge influence on me was S. Lewis Johnson Jr. He taught my father and he taught me 25 years after, and we had the privilege of hosting him in our home in Toronto on several occasions. And we were sitting there, and he said to, well, Peter, he said, uh, the word covenant is a lot more important than dispensation, which kind of blew me right out of the water. And this is S. Lewis Johnson telling me this. So that's what got me started studying the covenants, and I realized after a number of years that the, the progression of the covenants are at the heart of the Bible's plot line, if you will. So we're not arguing that covenant is the center of the Bible or that's the most important word in the Bible, but the sequence of covenants is central to the plot line of the Bible. And uh, after teaching this in my classes, for my students bugged me for six or eight years to write the book, and I didn't want to write it by myself because I knew I would make mistakes, so I roped in my friend Steve Wellham to try and keep me on track. <laughs> uh, so I, I, uh, so I kind of stumbled, stumbled into biblical theology. But I, I'm now a big believer that we need, that systematic theology has to be based on biblical theology. Biblical theology has to be based on exegesis, and I think that our book, Kingdom Through Covenant, is not the end. It's really just a suggestion of a hundred new ways to, to, uh, to uh, look at the Bible in fresh ways and, and do further study.